0: Insurance and Injury Law Show set to go once again. The number anytime you want to get a hold of James or Savannah or someone else on the team: triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. It is help at the insurance Lots of stuff to cover today as well. A bunch of your emails, so we will uh, we'll get at her as they say. James, start us off, brother, with the other week that was. What is going on with you?
1: Well, what I wanted to talk about this week is actually not something that just happened to me, so to speak, but is an issue that comes up with clients um, quite frequently. And it's about a portion of the litigation process um, called the discovery phase. Mm -hmm. So discoveries or examinations for discovery is the opportunity in a legal claim where each side asks questions of the other side. And so it's what you might see on American television shows called depositions. It's sort of the same thing. But it's not, you know, no one's banging the table or yelling at each other. It's actually a lot more subdued than that. And it's usually pretty friendly. But I want to just take a minute or two and just discuss that to um, make our audience familiar with it, so that you know there isn't this mystique around it, so that um, they're not afraid of that part of the process. Should it be required, and it's not always required, by the way, um, especially if you have a disability claim. Uh, very frequently, we're able to resolve disability claims without even going through this discovery process. But if we have to go through it, it's not a big deal at all. Simply put, it's just a day where you're going to be in a room with myself, if I'm your lawyer, and the lawyer from the other side. And they're just going to ask you questions. And, you know, I really, you know, I'll go through with my clients before this happens and prepare them for it. But really, the preparation is quite simple. The only things that my client have to keep in mind, number one, tell the truth. And number two, don't say any more than you need to. That's it. And that's the way you answer every single question. And it's literally, the way I say this to my clients when I meet with them to prepare them. I say, no matter what else I say during this meeting, if you don't remember anything other than tell the truth and say as little as possible, you're going to do very, very well. That guides you to answer literally every question. So it isn't something that you have to spend a lot of time worrying about, if you even have to do it at all. Um, and it's something that is often helpful, particularly in injury cases because there's gonna be a lot of information that isn't known. And so it's good that both sides have that information. Your case is what it is, and both sides need to know what the case is about in order to properly assess the value. So that's all the discovery phases. You hear it called discoveries or examinations for discoveries. That's what it is, pretty simple.
0: Do you find that if you don't uh, give them that little lead in, or has there been occasions I would imagine since you've been doing this, that people can uh, unknowingly get themselves in some hot water just because they don't know the correct verbiage or what to say or when to stop?
1: Well, my clients don't tend to do that. I spend a lot of time preparing my clients and making sure that they're comfortable with the process, but as part of the process, I get to examine um, defendants, and Very frequently, the relationship between the defendant, particularly if you're talking about, let's say, an automobile claim where, you know, some third-party driver has caused an accident um, and injured my client. So I'll get to examine the driver of the car that caused the accident. Now, that driver of the car has an insurance policy, and that insurance policy is going to pay for a lawyer to defend them. But really, other than being involved in this examination for discovery phase, the person that caused the accident, the defendant, isn't really involved in the lawsuit, and they don't really care what happens, because they're not the ones who are going to have to pay. And so there isn't a lot of communication between the defendant lawyer and the uh, defendant who I'm actually going to be examining. And typically speaking, they will have met with their lawyer for maybe 20 minutes before the examination starts. That's the only preparation that they do. Um, I spend a lot more time with my clients, and I do it well in advance so they have time to think about it and ask questions and do a little, of prep- a little preparation in advance so that they're ready to go. I don't see that often with defendants, and because of that, they can get themselves into a lot of hot water if yeah. they don't
0: very quickly pick up what their lawyer is telling them that morning. The number, by the way, one 990 That'll uh, put you in touch with James anytime. There is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. By the way, if you want to ever know what your uh, pain and suffering component of a case should be, that is injurycalculator.ca as well. I know James wants to talk a little more about that. Later on in the show, I want to get over to an email right away. This one from Dennis says, uh, My wife was making over $300,000 as a banking executive. But because of severe anxiety and depression, she had to stop work for almost two years ago. Uh, She's 48, and we were informed last week that her last payment will be next month unless she goes for treatments with a psychologist the adjuster wants her to see. The issue is that she's already been seeing her own psychologist for the past couple of years. Does she have to switch now to the psychologist the insurance company wants her to go to? No. No. She does not have to switch. Um, the, the most important thing throughout
1: any legal process is your own well-being. And right. so your legal claim should not be driving the, your, your decision-making uh, for um, anything medically related. That's, that should be coming from your doctors. And if you're getting effective treatment from a from a doctor, from a specialist, from a counselor, a psychiatrist, whatever, if you are getting effective treatment and that's helping you, you should continue with that. I don't care what anyone else has to say. I don't care what the insurance company has to say. I don't care what a lawyer has to say. That's a medical decision. You have to do what's in your best interest. Now, does that mean that there are no consequences to it? No, it doesn't. So if you refuse to go see this um, psychologist that the insurance company is insisting that you go to see, they would then be in a position to perhaps say that you're refusing treatment. Now there's obviously a good argument that you're already getting the same treatment and that you're not required to use their treatment provider. You can choose your own treatment provider, that's not their decision, but they can use that as a basis for cutting you off. It's not a legitimate basis. But that doesn't stop them from using it as a basis from cutting you off. So you may be in a position where if you don't go see their psychologist, that they cut you off. And then you are left with bringing a legal claim, which is, of course, when you call me. Um, but having said that, even if you go to their psychologist, you know it may well be the case that that's really just – Um, foreshadowing for what they really want to do. They want to send you to the psychologist because they want to get their ducks in a row so that they can build the case to cut you off anyway. Mm -hmm. So it may not matter what you do. Of course, the other option is you can go see both of them. Um, You shouldn't stop seeing your treating psychologist if they're being helpful, but that doesn't mean you can't also go see this other psychologist, assuming, you know, you have enough hours in the day. Um, But as long as you can do that, Um, Generally speaking, my advice to most people is if they are getting benefits, do what you can to comply with any reasonable request from your insurer, even if it's something like seeing another treatment provider. And I say that only because um, that is the best way to uh, make sure that you're getting benefits for as long as possible before cutting you off and to limit the arguments they have for cutting you off.
0: We'll take a short break to more of your questions and emails as well. The number 1-888-990-9646 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca for email as well. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. one 990 9646 is the number. As you know, help at the theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. We'll get to one very shortly uh, and continue on. In that regard. So, if a, um, James, if a person is injured on the job, can he or she claim both workers' comp and LTD? Sure. Um, as long as, you, of course, you have access
1: to both of them. Yeah, right, right. You, you can. Um, that doesn't mean that you're going to get twice the recovery. Um, typically speaking, virtually every LTD policy I've seen is going to have uh, a clause in there that will allow them. To get a credit for anything that you're paid, um, either for workers' compensation or for any other income replacement program, whether it's accident benefits or otherwise, and so you, you're not going to double recover for it. But um, if you have two different payors, then your chances of continuing to receive benefits into the future, are obviously, much better. So if right. you know, for example, you were getting your workers' comp, um, you know, at five hundred dollars a week and your LTD was paying you an additional 750 if your workers' comp cut you off, you would then get the full 1250 from your LTD. Or vice okay. versa, if your LTD cut you off, you're still at least getting that 500 from your workers' comp. So okay. it's better to have it even if, um, you know, at the end of the day you're not getting more early on. It just puts you in a better position down the road and makes sure that you get the most for as long as possible.
0: How does the injury calculator
1: work? So the injury calculator is a really interesting tool that you can use if you want to find out what your pain and suffering for an injury claim is going to be worth. Because we're talking about injuries and how do you put a dollar value on it. Well, the answer is you take a look at what the courts have done in the past. And so that's what we've done. We've created this tool that accesses a database that has All of the decisions across Canada over the last several years and it compares your information to information in other cases you know uh, involving similar injuries um, people of a similar age and so forth and it tells you what the expected range is likely to be for your claim now important to understand a few things number one this is anonymous unless you choose to be otherwise you can get this information without telling us any personal information about yourself other than your age and how you were injured and what your injuries are. There's no way anyone can identify you from that. You don't have to put in your email or contact information if you don't want to. So this is literally free information. It is there for you. Take it if you're curious. If you want more information beyond that, then you can send us an email, you can give us a call, and we're happy to give you more information that's available to you if you want it. But you don't need to do that, so please don't hesitate. There's no risk to you. It's just for informational purposes. If you want more, give us
0: a call. Again, InjuryCalculator.ca, absolutely free of charge. Give it a shot. Uh, George writes in through email. That is help at the George says, my mother-in-law fell and broke her hip at a long-term care facility. Uh, She had been there for less than a month, and that was the third time she fell. We asked on several occasions for her to have restraints in her wheelchair to stop her from getting up and falling out, but they refused to agree to do this. Uh, this was several months ago, and although her hip is mostly healed, she's not the same person anymore, and my wife and I spent countless hours caring for her while she recovered. Does she have a claim against the uh, long-term care facility?
1: Likely. Likely she yeah. does. Um One of the things that you need to understand with long-term care facilities is they have policies and procedures that are um, based on government standards, um, and one of those that you have to keep in mind is that restraints are generally frowned upon. They try and avoid restraints as much as possible. And so it's legitimate for the long-term care facility to want to avoid putting people in restraints if possible the question is in this particular case is this something that was already at a point where they should have known no this is someone that really does require this for for her own safety right, um right. and it, it sounds like in this case there's a pretty good argument that she did you know she'd already fallen i guess twice before this fall and you know it sounds like you'd raised this with um with the long term care facility so something that they ought to have known so yeah it does sound like there's a claim um, that your mother-in-law would have against this long-term care facility. But in addition to your mother's claim, your wife and you probably have a claim as well too under the Family Law Act because you've both provided additional care and support for your mother um, that is a result of this accident. And so you're both entitled to be compensated as well too. Okay. Um, and when you take a look at your mother-in-law's claim and the claims of you and your wife, that's probably sufficient to at least create enough risk that the the defendant is probably going to want to come to the table and resolve this, because optically it doesn't look good for them, even if they have um, what they think is a legitimate argument. You know, we're probably talking about an elderly woman here um, who has fallen three times in one month in their care. That does not look good for them, and that is not something that. They want dragging on and certainly not something that they want to see argued in court about where it becomes public information.
0: We'll uh, take a short break. You want to get a hold of James uh, in that regard, either email or phone call. Simple, 1-888-990-9646 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show. It is here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. The number help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. If you haven't checked it out yet, injurycalculator.ca. Two. That will tell you how much the pain and suffering component of your claim should be. Very simple to use. Anonymous. Takes about thirty seconds to get through it. And there is a contact button on the bottom if you so choose to contact James or Saban after using the uh, the calculator. So, if you have an injury claim and you can't return to your job, how are you compensated for your lost income?
1: So it depends a little bit on what, uh, what type of injury you've suffered. And I don't mean um, your physical injury, I mean how you've been injured. So if you're in a car accident, there are specific laws that will apply, um, whereas if you have a slip and fall, it's a little bit broader. The general principle that's applied when you're injured as a result of somebody else's negligence, um, the general principle is you're entitled to be put back into the same situation you would have been had the accident not happened. And so what that means is you take a look at what you would have earned without the accident, and compare that to what you have earned as a, since the accident, or what you would be capable of earning. Wow. So to put this in real terms, you know, let's say you were working a construction job and making eighty thousand dollars per year before the accident, and as a result of the accident, you can't continue in construction because you're you had a, let's say a back injury and you're not able to do it anymore. But, you know, you have some education and you're able to get, you know, a sedentary office job, perhaps, um, where you're making $35,000 a year. Right. So you're not entitled to the full $80,000 that you were earning before if you have the ability to continue working and making, say, $35,000. you are entitled to the difference. Okay. So you're entitled to, um, you know, make up whatever the difference is in your situation now versus before. And you're required to mitigate your loss. That means... You have to take steps to make your losses as a result of the accident as little as possible, either by going to rehabilitation and by limiting the amount of lost income, so by finding a job um, that is suitable for your skill set. Now, that doesn't mean that the moment you're injured, you have to start searching for a job right away. You're entitled to continue to try and pursue the the job that you had before as long as there's um, a reasonable basis for you to think that you might be able to do so. You know, obviously, if you've spent a good chunk of your life in one particular occupation, you're going to want to continue in that occupation if you're able to. Now, it might turn out that after you know a year and a half of trying, you can't do it. But whenever it is that you realize that you're no longer going to be able to do that, that's not realistic, that's when you have the duty to mitigate and find something else um, that can pay you as much as possible. And to the extent that the defendant can make an argument that you haven't done that, Um, they might get a deduction for what's called your residual earning capacity. And that just means the amount of money that you could earn after the accident um, as a result of, let's say, your education and experience.
0: Well, yeah, you you mentioned that off the off the bottom there, and that's what I thought it was going to bring up. This is where the whole thing with own occupation comes into play. In the two years, it's through training, education, or experience, the, the the finer test, right? That's where this all comes into play.
1: Well, so this is, that's a little bit of a different scenario, John. So you're talking about a disability claim. So the disability right. claim is based in contract. And so when you're talking uh-huh. about someone who has a disability claim, really you're just going to the policy and you're seeing what are you entitled to. Nice. Now, you're right. You know, There's similar language that we're talking about here in terms of the education, training, and experience. And so it's that same sort of test that we're looking at when we're trying to determine what you're still able to do after the accident. And so whatever um, a, a court might accept is your... Um, level of residual earning capacity based on a training experience um, and education. Cool. That's what your you know. That's what your income level post accident would be set at, and you're entitled to the difference.
0: The uh, phone number, by the way, anytime, get a hold of James or email one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. It is help at the That's exactly where we're going right now. Barbara writes in says uh, James, my friend, tripped on a pothole at a school crossing last week and fell hard on the road. She broke her left ankle and dislocated her shoulder. She's a personal support worker and is off work for now. She had surgery on her ankle and was told that it'll take time until it gets better, big time. Is the uh, city responsible for this?
1: The city is probably going to be on the hook for this. Um, There's something called the minimum maintenance standards, and this sets out the minimum amount of deviation before the city is required to fix any problem um, in their Uh, roads or sidewalks. And so you're talking about a pothole, but that's sort of a a, a vague term. We don't know exactly what we're talking about. We don't know how long it is, how wide it is, or how deep it is. And so these minimum maintenance standards will set out the amount that they're allowed to deviate before they have to repair it. And that's going to depend on how busy a road it is. So if it's, you know, a um, a heavily used artery, for example, um, the, that threshold is going to be much lower. So they're going to have to fix it much more quickly. Whereas if you're talking about, uh, you know, a fairly uh, a fairly lightly used residential road, they're going to be able to get away with a lot more. And so basically all you got to do is take a look at what the standards require and figure out what the deviation was here. So sometimes it requires actually going out and, taking a measurement, taking photographs and if possible with a ruler. Now I'm not recommending that people go out into busy streets and try and stop traffic to take measurements, (laughs) Um, but at some point you have to try and figure out what it is and so that can be a little bit tricky. Um, And so it's really important that you get an expert involved right away and by expert I mean you get a lawyer involved. Give us a call. Um, We certainly have people that can go out very quickly and get those measurements taken in a safe way. We don't want anyone going out on the street and injuring themselves or getting um, at risk of being hit by a car, of course. And don't do that, please. Give us a call right away, um, and we can help you get those measurements as required. Um, you know, One of the things, though, that I think is really important in Barbara's email is she mentioned that this happened last week. Yeah. So there is a law that requires you to give notice to a municipality if you are injured as a result of something on their roads or sidewalks and you have to do it within 10 days, yep. you have to give them the notice within 10 days. So you're still within that time frame, Barbara, um, so we can help you out. We can help you draft um, a letter to the clerk of, uh, of the city, presumably of Toronto, um, and just let them know the information required in order to satisfy this notice requirement. Um, so please do that as quickly as possible. If you have fallen on the on city property, you want to make sure you get that notice in within 10 days. If you have fallen and it's been more than 10 days, don't give up. Don't throw your hands in the air and say, oh no, there's nothing I can do because there's this, there's this notice requirement. Well, yeah, it's true that you may have you may have gone beyond the 10 day period, but there are cases. Um, that say that if you have a good reason that it wasn't within the 10 days that you can often survive that notice requirement and continue with your case. It becomes more difficult um, for sure, but that doesn't mean that you should give up on it. So please, even if you're past the 10-day mark, give us a call and we can talk you through it and we can figure out the best way to proceed.
0: Barbara, you've already got the email, obviously, so I'll give you the number, 1-888-990-9646, and as always, injurycalculator.ca as well. More of your questions and emails on the way after a short break. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. That is the number. Write it down. Keep it anytime you need it. Use it or help at the insurance Okay. Difference between soft tissue injuries and what insurance companies refer to as I'm making quote signs, they work great on radio. Real or objective injuries? How do you deal with the former?
1: I love this question. Uh-huh. So first of all, soft tissue injuries are real injuries. Uh, I, I hear that um, from time to time from defense counsel, that, oh, this isn't a real injury. It's a soft tissue injury. No. Soft tissue uh-huh. injuries are absolutely <laughs> real injuries. They happen all the time. We know this. Um, they are more difficult to prove because they don't typically show up um, on an x-ray or an MRI. It's not a broken bone. So it's more difficult to prove that you have um, you know ligament or muscle um, damage, strains, or tears. But that's really just a function of the medical technology that's available right now. As medical technology advances, our ability to be able to see these muscle tears at a microscopic level uh, is going to improve. And so that's something that's going to be less of an issue. The real or objective injuries are, you know, they will include anything that you're able to detect. And that's just a function of time. As time goes on, our ability to see this gets better. Now, Having said that, we have to live in a world where medical technology hasn't advanced to that stage yet. So how do you deal with that? Well, there are certainly experts um, that can deal with issues regarding soft tissue injuries and what often follows from that called chronic pain syndrome. Um, There are specialist doctors that deal with these all the time. So we're talking about orthopedic surgeons, and we're talking about even doctors that are in family practice that specialize in chronic pain management. So these types of experts, um, I will often use them in order to provide an expert opinion that can be presented to a jury if it were ever to go to trial in a way that is understandable. So this means that they're able to explain why, even though you can't see this particular injury on an x-ray, it's something that... Continues to inj- to hamper uh, my client on a long-term basis. It prevents them from doing a lot of the things they were doing before. Um, you know, back injuries are are an example that comes up all the time. If you have a lower back injury, if you've su- suffered ligament damage and you've got a lower back injury, that's something that. Um, will very frequently become chronic and if you have a job that requires any type of physicality that's something that's going to impact you probably for the rest of your life that's something that's going to limit your ability to do your job if not completely prevent it so you really need to have this medical foundation and these experts can certainly help now that's from a legal perspective From a medical perspective, um, you know, certainly there are pain management programs that can certainly help um, in terms of dealing with the ongoing pain. There are therapists that can help in terms of rehabilitation um, to the extent that you're able to do it, that your body is able to recover. Um, You're certainly uh, going to have access to uh, physiotherapy, chiropractic, massage. If you're involved in a car accident, all of these things can be paid through your own insurer. Um, if you have extended health benefits, that can help pay for those things as well too. So there's a lot of different ways that you want to look at this. Um, but you know, I don't take a look at someone who has you know soft tissue injuries and say, oh, okay, well there's no claim there. Yes, there is a claim there. Yeah. It's a real injury, and it is something that you're entitled to be compensated for.
0: We'll get to a uh, quick email here before we uh, we take a break. Craig writes in says, my son had been on heavy medications for a bipolar illness as well as severe depression. He was hospitalized for these several times and has suicidal tendencies. He's 32 and worked as a software programmer. He was making over $100,000, and he's on long-term disability. The problem is that he was told by his adjuster that they think he could do another job. His psychiatrist wrote the adjuster saying he can't go back to work yet, and there's still a long way for his recovery. We're afraid that he'll get cut cutout benefits, and that could trigger self-harm. Is there anything we should do now with respect to that insurer?
1: Well, first and foremost, you want to make sure that the insurer has all this information, um, especially regarding the suicidal tendencies. Um, That's something that they need to be made aware of. They need to know that their um, decision-making is not only going to have a real impact in uh, in terms of your son's income, but, you know, can very well have a you know very serious impact in terms on what he decides to do. And if he's got suicidal tendencies, um, you know, I, I don't want to have to connect the dots down the road here, but obviously yeah. it can have a major impact. And so, you know, insurance companies are often very cavalier in how they make their decisions. But when you put something like that to them, it it forces them to take a pause and really take a look at it. So please make sure that they have this information, and not just from you, um, provide you know, your treating doctors or your son's treating doctor's notes um, that will uh, verify all of this information, um, and that's something that's going to force them to really take a much harder look. Uh, when you're talking about someone suffering from uh, bipolar illness and severe depression, you know I, I don't really care if an insurance company is saying that they can go do another job. I want to hear what you know your doctors are saying because obviously you know these types of conditions uh, lie somewhere on a continuum, but if it's anywhere near the severe side of it, I can't imagine any type of employment that you're going to be able to do on a regular basis if you're suffering from bipolar disease and severe depression. How are you supposed to, you know, on five days a week, 40 hours a week, how are you supposed to be able to go to those jobs if you're suffering psychologically from these types of conditions? You can't. You can't. It's completely unrealistic. Um, You know, physical injuries, you know, there are often other occupations that you might be able to do. But if you're suffering from severe psychological and emotional issues, it's just not realistic. And so that's something that you can certainly challenge them on if they ever cut you off. Um, But it's really important that the insurance company is aware that the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, that they're aware that it is um, very serious and that your son has considered suicide before and that their decision might impact his own decision.
0: Want to get on that as soon as you can? The phone number, very simple, one 990 9646 And to reach out through email to Savan or James or a member of the team, it is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. one 990 9646 the number, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. That's the email to use. Want to get a hold of James or Savan or the, a member of the team? So, um... Question, what should someone do legally if a loved one has either died or been critically injured in a car accident? So the
1: first thing, um, you know, obviously we're talking about from a legal perspective. Right. Um, So the first thing is please give us a call. Um, There are two avenues that you would want to pursue legally. Um, One is accident benefits, and the other is a legal claim against the at-fault driver. And so if we're talking about... Um, someone who has died, um, you know, it's going to be less important that you do this quickly. Obviously, um, if it's someone who's been critically injured, you want to make sure that they have, you know, enough money to pay for anything that's ongoing. So these are actually two very different questions. Okay. So someone who's been critically injured, you know, they may have, um, you know, a mortgage that they have to pay. They may have a family that they have to support. So we really want to make sure that we get in there very quickly and make sure that they're. Own insurer is paying the accident benefits um, in order to make sure that there is at least some money coming in, and so that can happen very quickly. You give us a call, and we can get that set up um, typically within a matter of days, um, so that um, you know there is at least some assistance. And then, you know, on a long-term basis, you look at bringing a legal claim, um, and certainly that can help compensate for loss of income, for pain and suffering for any additional care that they're required. Okay. Um, under accident benefits, if they qualify, if it's, if it's a critical injury and it has severe long-term consequences, um, they may well qualify for what are called catastrophic injuries. And so that provides a much higher level of accident benefits, so up to a $1 million of medical rehab and attending care benefits, um, and a higher level for a longer period for your income replacement. So, that's something that is there to consider. If someone has passed away as a result of a car accident, um, accident benefits can help pay for some funeral expenses. Um, and there are also other things that we can do in terms of a legal claim against the driver. It's Obviously, not going to be as time sensitive um, because there isn't immediate care that's required in those circumstances. But give us a call and we can discuss what the options are. And sometimes, you know, where someone has passed away, even if it is someone else's fault, there's a decision that has to be made there um, as to whether or not it's something that the family wants to pursue or not. Um, because you know pursuing a legal claim is something that can uh, really drag out the grieving process. Sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it's a good decision to do it, sometimes it's not and I'm always happy to have a very frank and open conversation with anyone approaching me um, about a loved one who has passed away because I think it's very important that people understand what lies ahead, what they're getting themselves into and if they're ready to do that and if they are, great. But if they're not, that's okay too. I think it's very good that people get the information at the outset and can make a very informed decision.
0: Is uh, one of those claims? What do they call it? Loss of companionship. If you lose, a, if you lose a loved one or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a loss of companionship claim. Um, there's loss of dependency claims. Right. So there, there are different ways um, that you can go about this. But again, you know, I don't want to overcomplicate this. Yeah, right. um, you know, if you have lost a loved one as a result of an accident, give us a call and we can discuss broadly. Um, what might be available. Um, But again, it's in the context of, is this something that you really want to do? Um, And some people will want to to do that, and for good reason. Others won't, and that's fine too.
0: I want to go to an email, but uh, we're down to two minutes with this uh, segment before we break, so I'll ask you one that I know you can squeeze into two minutes. And I know we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Why is it not a good idea to appeal denials with insurance companies?
1: When you appeal, a decision of a a disability claim, um, a denial of a disability claim, you are just asking the same insurance company that has denied your benefits or cut you off to just reconsider. It's like saying, oh, well, okay, please just uh, take another look at it. They're not going to do it. It is in their interest to keep you in that appeal process because they get to make the decisions, and they want to keep you in that appeal process as long as possible because if they keep you in that process for two years, you don't bring a legal claim, And you have no options. Nice. You can't bring a legal claim. Well, it's not nice. It's not nice for the people who've been cut off. It's nice for the insurance company. Brutal. Um, And so that's all they're trying to do. They're going to send you a letter either denying your benefits or cutting off your benefits if you've already received them. And they're going to say, oh, you only have. Thirty days or sixty days to send us the appeal. So send us whatever documents you want to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're gonna—they won't even do it as though it's an option. They're gonna say, you know, when you appeal this, send us these documents as though it's, you know, a fait accompli. It's something that everyone's gonna do. Well, no, um, you do not have to appeal, and you typically don't want to appeal because that's just gonna waste time. The longer you spend in the appeal process before starting the legal claim, the longer it's gonna be before you get it resolved. Because they're not going to reverse their decisions unless there's something that is completely obvious that they've missed. And almost always that's not the case. Almost yeah. always you know, they see what's there, and they're just cutting you off even if they're wrong. They're just cutting you off because they don't think you're going to bring a legal claim. So you know, th- it's a waste of your time. Don't do it. Start a legal claim. Give us a call. We'll start a legal claim. We'll get them to the table as quickly as possible.
0: 1-888-990-9646. That is the number, and it is help at insurancelawyer.ca. We'll bounce over to another email as we get down to our last few minutes for uh, the show. This hour, this is the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six the number. Email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. If you even want to use this, you never used it before. Even just for interest's sake, want to find out what pain and suffering component of a claim should be, whether it be yours or a friend or family member, injurycalculator.ca as well. Email from Jerry says, my sister is getting LTD for a knee replacement uh, for over a year now. She's 52, and her insurer wants to pay her up to the two-year mark and close her file. Her adjuster is pressuring her to agree, but I think she should call you. What happens if she doesn't agree to the adjuster's demands? Great
1: question, Jerry. So put yourself in the position of Jerry's sister here. She's been on disability for over a year. Let's say, you know, 14 months. It means that she's got another 10 months to go before she hits the two-year mark. And the two-year mark is a pretty critical point in a long-term disability claim. After you've been receiving LTD benefits for two years, there's a change in definition. You're only entitled to benefits um, after the two-year mark if you're not able to do any occupation, whereas in the first two years, it's whether you can return to the occupation that you had at the time you went on disability. So the test gets tougher after two years. That's true. That's what's typically in most policies. And so what the insurer, what the adjuster is trying to do here is saying to Uh, Jerry's sister, you know, they're saying, okay, well, you know, you're probably not going to get benefits after two years anyway. So, you know, we'll just pay you up to the two-year mark. That's about 10 months. We'll just give that all to you right now up front. We'll close Mm. the file and that'll be that. We'll be done with it. Well, there's a reason why they're doing that. I mean, if they're so confident that they're going to be able to cut you off at the two-year mark anyway, legitimately, then they would just pay you out month by month. They would hold on to their money and they would pay you out up until the two-year mark and then cut right. you off. They're trying to do this now. They're trying to entice your sister by giving her a chunk of money up front that she'd be getting anyway, that she'd be getting anyway, in order to relieve them of any risk of having to pay beyond the two-year mark. And make no mistake about it, that's the only reason they're offering to do that is because they know that at the two-year mark, your sister is still likely going to qualify for benefits from any the, the occupation test. Um, You know, you're talking about a a knee replacement. She's 52 years old. What kind of jobs is she going to be able to have? Now, I can't answer that. I don't know anything about your sister, Jerry. Um, But I can tell you that if the insurance company is coming to you now or coming to your sister now and offering to put the money on the table up to the two year mark, it's only because they think that they're better off doing it that way. They think that they're going to save money. If they thought that they were going to have to pay beyond the two-year mark, they wouldn't give her a dime earlier than they had to. They'd hold right. on to that money. Trust yeah. me. So if they're, if they're offering her to pay her up front, that's the reason why. And I agree that you know she should give us a call. Um, and we'll take a look at it and we'll talk to her. If she doesn't agree, what can happen? Well, they could cut her off. Um, that's possible. They can cut her off for any reason that they want to. That doesn't mean it's legitimate, but they can do that. More than likely, if they've already said that they would pay her up to the two-year mark um, to close the file, they probably won't cut her off, but I can't make you any guarantee of that. They can cut her off at any point and without any particular reason. They're not allowed to, but they still can do it.
0: Let me slide this in for the last couple of minutes. So, once you start a legal claim, um, how involved is the client in the process? Is it something they spend time on every day, every hour, every week, every month? Well, it, it
1: kind of depends both on the type of claim that we're talking about and on the client. So, typically speaking, um, I like to tell my clients that I am um, going to take the legal, the, the stress part out of the legal process for them. And so I'm not going to require that they, you know, do anything more than what is necessary to advance the claim. And typically speaking, after the initial interview, um, the next involvement is either going to be at mediation, if it's a disability claim, that's typically the first thing, um, or at the examinations for discovery, which I talked about earlier in the show. Um, but that doesn't happen usually for at least several months down the road. And so between the time that I first meet with the clients in either the mediation or the examination for discovery, there usually isn't much for the client to do. And so their focus during that time is on getting better, on getting treatment, on doing what their doctor tells them they should do in order to recover. That's what they're, That's what's required of them. Now, that doesn't mean that they cannot be more involved. Um, I'm more than happy to have my clients as involved as they would like to be And so any questions my clients have, I'm always happy to answer them. And I always tell them, don't be afraid to call me. Don't be afraid to email me directly. That's fine. I have a direct number that my clients have, and they use it. They use it to call me up and ask me questions, and that's perfectly fine. Some people don't want to be involved. Some people, they don't want to be involved in any part of that more than they need to be, and they just say, James, you deal with it and, you know, let me know what I need to do and I'll do that. Other people want to know what's happening at every stage and that's fine too. Whatever you would like to do is fine, but what's required is pretty minimal. So it's not something that you should worry about in terms of, oh no, now I'm starting a legal claim and now this is going to be something that I have to do um, every day or every week or whatever. No, that's not the case. If you would like to be more involved, you can be, but you, you certainly don't need to be.
0: That'll wrap it for another week to contact James. He did mention the phone number. I'll give it to you 1 888 990 9646. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. That is email. And if you haven't checked it out yet to find out what the pain and suffering portion of a claim could be, should be, injurycalculator.ca. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show right here. At Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.